Thank you, Pastor Andrew, and welcome back. We are missed you. We are so glad to have you back and Lindsay. And uh, it's good to see you tonight. Aren't you glad to be in the Lord's house? Amen. And uh, this is the day the Lord's made, and we will rejoice and we'll be glad in it. God's got a word for you today. Do you believe that? He does. And uh, I encourage you tonight to open your Bible. We're going to begin a new series of messages. And we're going to be over the, next, the course of the next several weeks in a, in a book called First uh, Peter. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it and find there the book of First Peter. It's one of the uh, Catholic epistles or general epistles that we find in the scripture. And it's, by the, uh, it's found in chapter number one. We're going to talk about it uh, today as we look at this book together. Understand that it's really about how to live a godly life in a foreign land. How do I live this life? How do I live as a Christian? How do I live a godly way in a world that's not my final home? And you know, that's a good question for all of us as Christians to ask, amen? How do I live this thing out in this world in which I live now, but I know this world is not my final home? By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not your final destination. You have a greater citizenship than what is found in this world. And so the Apostle Peter is reminding us of this in this great theme. Our, he talks about our identity in Christ and what is our identity in this world. We live in a world of suffering and trials, of misunderstanding and hardship, don't we? We live in a world where um, there's a lot of opposition to God, to the things of God. There's opposition against authority completely. There's opposition against truth, against moral authority. Everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. And their God is often their own desires, their own belly. Their God is their belly. They, they live for themselves and what they want or what they think or what the mob thinks or what the culture thinks. But what does God think? And how do we live and so those of us who want to submit to God and believe in his authority and want to walk rightly before him and teach others there is truth, there is authority, there is accountability, and God is at work in this world and point people to Christ, there will be opposition, there will be persecution, and we should not think it a surprising thing when it comes against us. This is a letter, and it's a great letter to a church, and it was, it was a good mail. Sometimes Christy loves to get the mail at home. She goes out to the mailbox, gets the mail, goes through it. I come home and I say, well, is there anything good in the mail? Other than advertisements, flyers, or bills, anything else good in there? And if there's a card or a letter or a note from somebody, that's a good thing. Well, there's a letter this church received, and it's coming from the Apostle Peter. If you look with me to chapter 1, verse number 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours 
in the fullest measure. When we get a letter in our world, usually the signature is at the bottom of the letter, at the close of the letter. In New Testament days, they began the letter by telling you who was writing the letter. And it says the letter's author is Peter. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is this? We know about him because of the Gospels it's, and the book of Acts. It is a man named Simon. And Simon was, uh, his brother was Andrew, and they were fishermen by trade. They were in partnership with James and John and his father, Father Zebedee. And so Andrew uh, is the first to hear Jesus and listen to him. And he goes and he finds his brother Peter, uh, Simon. And he says, Simon, you need to come and listen to him. Could this be the Messiah? And Simon, they had been listening to John the Baptist, following what he was preaching. And now P uh, Simon comes and Andrew introduces him to Jesus. Jesus, when he sees him, he says, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. Now, the word Cephas is Greek for Peter. He says, you are Cephas. It means rock. He says, you're, you're going to be called Rocky. That's who you're going to be called. And he says, you're going to be a rock. Not long after that, and we find near Capernaum, this is where Peter was from and Andrew, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum and Bethsaida was their hometown. They were fishermen by trade. And, and Jesus was teaching, and large numbers of people were coming out to hear him from that whole region. So Jesus goes down near the lake, and he sits in Peter's boat. And he is teaching the people using the natural amplification off of the, the lake. And uh, then after a while, as he's finished, he says to him, Simon, why don't you push out a little bit further, and we'll cast over our nets and see if we'll catch a fish. And Peter said, Lord, we've been fishing all night long. We just cleaned the nets and put them away. But at your, your word, we'll throw out the nets. And so they threw out the nets. Guess what happened? They filled with fish. There were so many fish that filled into those nets that the nets were beginning to tear. Peter and the others in the boat are pulling the fish into the boat. It is so filled with fish, he yells over to James and John, bring your boat. And they fill both boats, and both boats are about to sink. They're so full of fish. Well, let me tell you, that's a banner night, isn't it? Or morning. And he becomes, Peter does, filled with fear. And he says, depart from me, me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so he realized he was in the presence of someone greater than him. And later on the seashore, Jesus says to Simon, and he says to Andrew and to James and John, you follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. These men left everything, left their career, left their boats, left their father-in-law. They left them all, and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus changes their life. This is the Simon Peter. This is the apostle we're talking about. He's also the one that confessed the in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 16. You remember the story. Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And they say, you're one of the prophets, maybe. Maybe one of the prophets come back from the dead, or John the Baptist come back from the dead. And they say, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, And your name is Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not stand against it. That's who you are. And I give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. He says, I'm giving you a ministry on this earth to carry out the will of heaven in this world. Wow. That's who this is that's writing them. He was an impulsive figure, Peter was. Not only a fisherman, a Galilean, but he could be impulsive and jump in and uh, uh, had an anger issue sometimes. And, and uh, in the upper room, Jesus looked at him. He said, after they'd been debating about different positions in the kingdom, he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you that you may not fail, that your faith may not fail. But when you've returned, that you will strengthen your brothers. So, Simon Peter indeed did fail. Later in that same conversation, Peter says, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. I'm willing to die for you. And he said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And it wasn't long, just hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is arrested. You know the story. And Simon Peter is so filled with fear and, and anger that he grabs his sword and takes a swipe at one of the high priest's servants intending to take off his head, but he lops off his ear. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way this kingdom is. Jesus heals that servant. And then he's carried to be away to Caiaphas and Annas and before the Sanhedrin, and he is taken through a mock river trial. It's in the courtyard that Peter three times denies that he knows Jesus, curses and says, I do not know the man. And then the rooster crows. Peter makes eye contact with Jesus from a distance and his heart is broken. This is the same Peter. And the Bible tells me in his brokenness on resurrection morning, Peter heard news that the tomb was empty from the women. He couldn't believe it hardly. He and John ran ahead to the tomb, and they saw that it was empty, but Jesus he did not see. But later, Jesus had told the women, go to Galilee, and I'll appear to you there. And Peter goes to Galilee, and it's some time later. He's with the brothers, and he says, let's go fishing. They fished all night long. It's early in the morning, and they see a shadowy figure in the early morning standing on the seashore. You know the story, don't you? And this man on the shore cries out, Hey, boys, children, caught any fish? They grumblingly say, No, we haven't caught anything. He said, Cast your net out on the other side. See if you'll get a catch. And they throw their nets over on the other side, and it's filled with fish, reminding them. John said, It's the Lord. And Peter said, I, He just dove out of the boat. Impulsive Peter swam to the shore. And it's on that seashore. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than boats, more than the fish? Do you love me more than all these other disciples? Do you? He said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. He said, do you love me 
a second time. He said, tend my lambs. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything about him. The third time, you know I love you. Then you take care of my sheep. Simon Peter is transformed. He is transformed to be a different man. Simon is now becoming a rock. Simon is moved from becoming a fisher of fish to a fisher of men. Simon is transformed from being a fearful denier to a bold proclaimer. He's moved from being a fisherman to a shepherd, from a Galilean worker to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who this is. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, it's Simon who's the leader among all of the apostles. And he stands and preaches the gospel. And 3,000 souls were saved. This same Simon is dragged, he and John, before the same Sanhedrin, before Annas and Caiaphas, after they've healed a lame man. And they said, what about this lame man? How is he made whole? And they said, by the same one that you crucified, whom God raised to the dead, this is the one whom he stands whole by his power. They said, you are no longer preacher teaching his name. And they said, whether or not it's right to obey God rather than you, you decide. But I'll tell you one thing, we can't help but preach in the name of Jesus. That's powerful, bold, spirit-filled apostle Peter. And he's the one writing this book. Although some scholars have tried to deny his authorship, that's all bogus. It is Simon Peter, one of the 12 apostles. Now, who are the recipients? It says, those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And uh, this is in modern Turkey. It's uh, the northern part of Asia Minor. And it's primarily Gentiles. And he's writing to the churches, to these Gentile believers in this region. It is an area where Paul, remember, is permitted, per, not allowed by the Holy Spirit to go into Bithynia and some of those regions. Some of those residents from that area were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, according to Dr. Luke. But Peter's relationship with these churches, he is an apostle. And he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith, and to stand firm in the Lord. He knows there's persecution coming and starting to, be ex in, to exist. Now, where does Peter write from? In chapter 5, verse 13, he's writing from what he calls Babylon. Where is Babylon? We're not talking about the city in Mesopotamia, but he is writing from Rome. And he's being held there in Rome. And he, is, uh, uh, he knows suffering is coming. It's during the reign of Nero. And he's writing. And to these who are uh, experiencing suffering. And he knows it's just the first pains of a great outbreak of suffering that will take place. One of the great themes of 1 Peter has to do with suffering. Fifteen times the word suffering is found in this book. It's referred to in every chapter of 1 Peter. The theme is to encourage suffering believers to stand firm for Christ, reminding them that this is not our final homeland. And to focus on the rights and privileges that we have 
in our citizenship, which is in heaven, and live with hope and faith, even when the world persecutes you and you experience suffering. That's a good word for us. Amen? Now, some key texts that we'll look at as we look in this passage of Scripture. A couple of theme texts that you'll find is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. If you have your Bible, look with me. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of your time in the flesh no longer. Don't live for the lust of men but for the will of God. So this is the theme. This is what he's teaching us. In chapter number 5, verse number 12, sort of a key text in understanding this book. Through Silvanus. Silvanus is most likely Peter's secretary. He is also the one by, uh, this is Silas. This is the one Paul and Silas. They were together and his missionaries. So Silas is now with Peter. And he's helping him probably even craft this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this letter. And he says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, now listen, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Don't waver. Huh. Verse 13. She who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, the church of Rome, sends you greetings. So does my son, Mark. Who is that? John Mark. Most people believe that the gospel according to Mark was given to John Mark through the voice of Peter himself. What a beautiful, uh, beautiful text for us to understand. So tonight, I want us to look at two things. I, one thing, I want us to look at this, our identity. And I want us to think together about our identity. Who you are in this world, number one. And the second thing is, who you are in Christ, number two. We've got a lot to cover. So first of all, who are we in this world? Who are you in this world? He says you're aliens, you're exiles, you're strangers, you're travelers. You're not living in your homeland, you're living in a foreign land. Now, some may have been alien because of Jewish persecution, but what he's saying is all believers are aliens because we're not living in our final homeland. Amen? And he says, the culture that you're living in, you're not citizens in that foreign land. And you're scattered. You're dispersed, dispersed among these regions in Asia Minor. But this world is not your home. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, you're aliens, you're soldiers. It reminds us of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior. Where is your citizenship? Where are your papers from? Folks, it's not, you can have an earthly citizenship, but as Christians, you have a heavenly citizenship. Amen? Are y'all with me tonight? Amen. Amen. Now, with notice in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. Do you have your Bible? Hebrews chapter... See, you're going to need your Bible. I encourage you to bring it. Hebrews chapter number 11. 
Notice what the Bible, what the scripture says concerning this world in which we live. Hebrews chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning with verse number 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles of the earth, for those who say things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's a prepared a city for them. My friends, we walk by faith, and our home is not in this world. Amen. So here's the thing. Don't live your life for the things of this world. Don't think that the, everything in this world is what life's all about. The politics of this world, it's what it's all about. The things, the material goods, your satisfaction in this world, in this age in which we're here for just a blimp, for a, just, a, just a moment of time, and then there's all of eternity that will be with the Lord. Don't lay up yourselves treasures here on earth where moth. Uh, can, and, and rust and thieves break in and can destroy and thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where no moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal folks we've got a citizenship in heaven amen so that's who we are here here we're just strangers we're just alien here aliens we're just we're non-resident occupiers in this world but we have a home and that home is in heaven now now how are we supposed to live in this world well then he Peter that's the point of this letter he says well then you need to understand who you are in Christ Jesus what's your identity so now he moves to that this is who you are and who you are will give you strength and how to live in this broken world. Anybody need some strength to live in this broken world? Now here's some things he tells us about who you are. First of all, at the end of verse number one, he says you are elect. Elect, yes, you're elect. Let me tell you what, there's a lot of concern and hype and it's even going to get more exaggerated in the coming days about an election. Did anybody know that we're in an election year? And so election's going to happen. And you know what? People are going to vo be voted in and elected to this office or that office. And everybody can work however they want for an election. But can I tell you about the election that really matters? The election that really matters is the election that God took, that took place in God himself when he elected you to be a son or daughter in Jesus Christ. You were elected by him, elected by the Father. He said you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That is what we know as believers, that we didn't choose him, but he chose us. Amen. We couldn't seek him because we were, we, our hearts were broken. We couldn't find him because our eyes were blinded. We couldn't raise ourselves out of the dead because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he chose you, and he rescued you, and he saved you. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we give thanks to God always for you all, knowing, brethren, his choice of you. 
God chose you to be his by his sovereign grace. You were dead and blind and lost and abandoned. You were helpless and hopeless. But he saved you. And he chose you to be his. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. He loves you with an everlasting love. When I was a teenage boy, I used to, uh, or uh, yeah, teenager, I remember walking to the post office, and I ran into a sign just out the side of the post office every time I went to the post office. And it was a sign of Uncle Sam. Do you mind know what Uncle Sam looked like? He had on a top hat, and it was uh, stripes with the flag colors, and a, a crazy outfit, and a bony finger pointed right at you and said, Uncle Sam wants you. It was right at the end of the Vietnam War. I tried to close my eyes when I walked by Uncle Sam. I, I thought he was going to choose me. He wants me. But the God of heaven reached down his powerful finger and he did a saving work in you and he chose you to be his. It's an amazing thought. You say, Brother Tim, is that in the Bible really? Yes. Ephesians, and it should never make anyone ever proud, but it always should make you humble. And it should bless you to understand the great love of God for you. In the book of Ephesians, chapter number one, beginning verse number three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. Where? Who? How? In the beloved. God has chosen to save you, and he's saving you through the work of Jesus Christ. God's work of salvation in you. I wish I had time to read the text, but it's over in Ezekiel chapter 16. There's the description of the children of Israel. And he says, you were just a wandering Amorite and your father was a Hittite. And he said, you had no heritage. And he saw you, I saw you, you were in nothing but a pool of blood. Your umbilical cord wasn't even cut. You, you, were, just, you were just crying in a pool of blood. There was no one there to care for you. No one there. You were just given birth to and abandoned on the street. And I saw you in a pool of blood. And I said to you, live. Live. And I came to you. And I washed you. And I clothed you. And I nursed you. And I blessed you. And I put shoes on your feet. And I helped you grow up. And I put jewels on your neck and I called you to be my bride and I called you to be my people and I adopted you 
out of death into life. That is what God Almighty did. He saw you dead and dying. And in his love, he reached down and he saved you and made you a son or daughter through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. God did not do it because he saw something in you that earned it or deserved it. He did it by his grace and for his glory. Hallelujah. Ooh, doesn't that bless your heart? So when you can persecute you, me all you want, I am a child of God. And he saved me and made his, me his child. Secondly, he sanctified you by the Spirit. That is what it says in our text. It says we are sanctified by the Spirit. See, God has chosen you, selected you by the Father's uh, foreknowledge, and then sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the work of God's Spirit that cleanses you, sanctifies you. I think here the text is talking about God's work in you so that you might be born again, might be saved. And the Holy Spirit works in you. You see, you can't cause yourself to be born again. It's a work of God. It's birth from above. You've got to be born of the flesh and of the Spirit. And it's God's Spirit that works in you, makes you a child of God. Amen. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, according to his grace, mercy, who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. He sanctifies you, cleanses you, makes you holy, sets you apart, and makes you to become the people of God. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. He says in chapter 2, verse number 9, God's work in you, sanctifying you. So you see the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, but your salvation, all of the Trinity is involved in your salvation and who you are because you were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in this text. It's amazing. He said, you're sanctified by the work of the Spirit. For what purpose? That you might obey Jesus Christ. Did I, now let me just stop there for a moment. You were saved for a reason. And that reason is to obey Jesus Christ. You weren't just saved so that your name by me written in a book and you get fire insurance. And now you can live however you want. No, you were saved so that you would live for Jesus Christ. Obey him and live for him. Listen, if you don't have any desire in your heart to obey Jesus Christ, then it calls into question whether you have ever been saved. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who Amen. is in heaven. And so salvation brings into our hearts a desire and an ability to obey Jesus Christ in our life. God saved you to serve him, to love him, to walk with him, to magnify him, to please him. Amen? Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Amen. Amen. You were sprinkled, sprinkled clean by the work of Jesus Christ. How, we're, how God did this, and in, in God was working, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in your salvation. 
Now notice what the God the Son was doing. You were sprinkled with his blood. The word here used for sprinkled in his blood, it's talking about the Old Testament system in the Old Testament sacrifices. They would take a lamb or a bull and they would kill the animal. They would capture the blood in a basin. It would be poured out as an offering before God. And then, then that death of an innocent victim in the place of guilty people, it was an act of worship before God. They would sprinkle to, to cleanse the things of the altar. They would take a branch and dip some of the leaves of that branch into the blood, and then they would sprinkle it on the altar, sprinkle it on the utensils, sprinkle it on the people. And it was an understanding that the life was in the blood, that the cleansing happened because of the blood sacrifice for us. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin because it had to be one in our own likeness that died for us and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Behold the Lamb of God, John said, that takes away the sin of the world. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed and sprinkled. Hebrews chapter number 9 Hebrews chapter number 9 Notice in verse number 21, and in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may always say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He didn't go to a temple or a tabernacle. But he, but a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My friends, this is how you are saved. Jesus Christ's own precious blood. Before the very throne room in the very throne room of God himself, in the perfect holy of holies, and the blood that was sprinkled for our salvation was the sinless, spotless, perfect child of God, Jesus Christ. And he atoned for our sin, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and it is finished. There is no other way to be saved but in Jesus Christ alone. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. You have been sprinkled by his blood. Wow, you've not been redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, with imperishable, the precious 
blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. God loves you. You're a covenant people. He's made an everlasting covenant with you. He has sprinkled you with his blood. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. And finally, our time is about gone. I have much more to say, but our time is about gone. Listen to what he has to say. At the end of this verse, verse 3, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You're not only sprinkled clean, you're a covenant people. You are blessed beyond measure. Understand this. You're blessed beyond measure. You are blessed beyond measure. <laughs> you've been blessed so much, there's no way I can describe how blessed you are. And this is how you've been blessed. He says, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. The word here for grace is the word charis. It's God's favor, God's blessing, God's love for you. It is, it is his forgiveness for you, his love for you, his adoption of you, his unmerited favor you did not earn or deserve, and God so loved you that he gave his one and only son for you. God so loved you that he called you to himself. God so loved you he chose you when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. God so loved you that he caused you to be born again. God so loved you that he, he called you to obey Jesus and you want to. He put a want to in your heart. God so loved you that he sprinkled you clean. God so wants you that he's made a new covenant. God so wants you that the Christ makes intercession for you in heaven. God so wants you that you're his forever and ever. And God so wants you that he's taken the grace of heaven. He's poured it out on top of you. And he says, I'm favoring you. You're favored. That's amazing. And peace. Shalom. The peace from God, peace with God. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. He said, so don't let your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. You suffer persecution, you worry about Rome, you worry about Nero, you wonder about persecution. Listen to me, don't you worry. God in heaven saved you. God in heaven still sits on the throne. God's not sitting in heaven today, wringing his hands, saying, oh, what are we going to do? God's in charge. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Because he's made peace with him, and he is our source of peace as we trust him. He is the God of all peace. And He's with you. And He'll take care of you. And He loves you. You're loved by the love of God. Do you feel His peace? Oh, He's right here in this room. And He's telling you tonight, I love you. And I'm overwhelmingly pouring out my grace and my peace on you. I'll take care of you. Amen. What are some takeaway questions for us to consider tonight? Number one, what should our attitude be about this world? What should your attitude be about this world? Some of you fretting and worrying and 
Don't listen, don't hold on to this world too tight. This is not your final destination. Amen. Second question. How secure are you in Christ? You should have read this text and you should have said, man, all of the Trinity holds me secure in Christ. Third question is, when I suffer in this world, where do I find strength and comfort? You find it in the Lord. By putting your faith and trust in Him. And the final question I want you to consider tonight is, am I living an obedient life to Jesus Christ? Am I living for the one who died for me? Father in heaven, as you've spoken to our hearts tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have convinced us of your great love and Father, that you, will call, you are calling us to walk in obedience before you. Trusting you no matter what the circumstances of life. And help us to live as aliens and strangers dispersed in this world. But help us to live with confidence in who we are. Yes, in Jesus Christ. Amen. In his name we pray. Amen.